The universe runs on laws, a complex and, and intricate web of laws. And you can't break these laws. They'll break you if you try. Uh, for example, the law of gravity or of Murphy's law. And the wisest man who lived once said, as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. And so we have another law of the universe, and that is that what you behold, you become. Or you are what you eat. So what do we focus on in life? What do you focus on in life? What are your attitudes towards life in general, towards work, uh, relationships, what you watch on TV, what you listen to? What are your attitudes towards these things? Who do you want to become? Who do you want to be in five years from now, ten years from now? What do you want your life to be like? Because I can tell you from experience and from talking to others who have gone before me that if you want the best life you can have, it comes from daily encounters with Jesus Christ. It comes from a consistent focus on our Saviour. And we get this in part, a big part, through reading his word, through reading the Bible. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. This book is an amazing book. The Guinness Book of Records admits that the Bible is the only book that outsells it year after year after year after year. A classic? It has been a bestseller since 1455 when it was the first book that was ever printed. It's been around for a while. And it's amazing because, quite simply, it saves people. It gives people that full and abundant life that I'm guessing every single one of us would like. It's a compilation of people's experiences with God and it shows us what God is like and the types of experiences that we can expect with God. One writer said, These things are written so that you will put your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and if you have faith in him, you will have true life or full life or abundant life. And it answers the big questions. It answers questions like, where did I come from? And what's my purpose here? And where am I going? What's it all about? It answers those questions. And the Bible claims that all the Bible, the whole lot, is given by inspiration from God. It wasn't written just by men, but it was inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what's true and the best way to live, the best sort of life we can have. That's what it says it's for. And this book, this book is amazingly written. If you um, ask the police, if, if the police come to an event, like a car accident or something, and they have two accounts, two eyewitnesses, which are exactly the same, they know something's up, because that never happens. If you ask different people to relay their memory and account of an event, you're always going to get differences. You're always going to get different perspectives and, and sometimes contradictory. And yet, this compilation of 66 different books written by about 40 different people whose education and background vary greatly from kings to shepherds to scientists and attorneys and army generals, fishermen, priests and physicians on three different continents – 
by people who in most cases had never met over a period of about 1,500 years in three different languages on the most controversial subjects you will ever read about and yet it reads as if it was written by one great mind. Have you ever thought about that? It's because it was written by one great mind. The Bible says that prophecy never came because some human desired it. But holy people wrote from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing book. Can we trust it? There are, there are so many reasons I could give you why we can trust it. In a world where trust is so fleeting and so hard to, um, hard to earn, if you look simply at Jesus and the prophecies about Jesus, there are 125 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus the Messiah who would come. I'll give you just a few, and we can throw a few of these up on the screen, I think, uh, maybe. One, he was, born, he was to be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, of David's lineage. The attempted murder by Herod was prophesied, that he would be sold for 30 silver coins, that he would be crucified, that lots would be cast for his clothes, no bones would be broken, he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, even though he wasn't rich. The year, the day, and the hour of his death was foretold, and that he would be raised from dead on the third day. Dr. Peter Stoner, who was the former chairman of the uh, departments of mathematics, astronomy and engineering at Pasadena University in California, worked with 600 students for several years applying the principles of probability to the prophecies of the Messiah. They chose just eight of the 125 prophecies and concluded the probability of all eight being fulfilled by one person in their lifetime, was, I don't even know what that number is. That, for me, that number's impossible. That's what that number is, right? So what would be the odds of 125 prophecies, not just eight? It just couldn't happen. This is an amazing book filled with what you need to, in, to enjoy life abundant with God now and forever. So what's in it? We've got quite a cross-section of people that attend this church, from those people who are really new to all this to those people who have been living it with, uh, with it for years. And so this morning I want to have a look at a few things that hopefully will speak to all of us in, in some regard. But let's start with, um, well, what's in it? Is it a bunch of rules on how to live a totally drab life and stories of boring saints doing airy-fairy, meaningless stuff? No! This book is filled with ripping tales of mistakes and adventure of real people, the dirty linen of royals and commoners, rich and poor, ugly and beautiful, musicians, prostitutes, slaves, hired killers, great leaders. Some of the stories are tragic, rape, Mass murder, divorce, betrayal, family breakdown, and others can be absolutely hilarious. But all of them make you think. All of them make you think. Stories of people's experiences with God. And it builds our expectations of our experience with God. So if you're new to this book, 
Or if you perhaps haven't dived into this book for a little while, what do you read? What are some of the, some of the best bits? What are some of the most poignant bits? We've got a list up on that we can throw up on the board. I want to go through a few of these. Now, this morning, stop reading the list back here. Now, this morning, we're going to throw a few things up. There's this list and there's a few other lists later on which are designed to sort of help you out. They're all available on the Refresh um, Church website. Who knows what the Refresh Church website address is? Can someone yell it out? Not a single person. Okay, it is www.refreshchurch, look me up on google.com. Okay, no, it's www.refreshchurch.com.au. Okay, they're all on there under sermons, okay, so you can get them later. So, what do you read? If you're new to this book or if you haven't been in it for a little while, what are some things you can read? Okay, first of all, the first creation story, Genesis 1, 2 to 3. If you have a look at the index at the front, you'll find these books, you've got the list on the website, which... I would say the story of Genesis of creation is, is best read out loud, told the way that the people first told it when it was uh, first handed down from father to son all those centuries ago. You've got the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, which is certainly not for the faint-hearted, and we're going to look at that one in just a moment. You've got Joseph, a rich man's favourite son who becomes a slave, survives, then rises to prime minister by wit, work and principle. You've got Samson's, big muscles, wobbly faith, dumb choices, tragic love life and bloody war record. A giant-sized problem for little David. King David's affair wrecks his family and his kingdom. Why is King Solomon about to cut this baby in half? Esther, an orphan girl who becomes queen and risks her life to save a nation from genocide over 2,000 years before Hitler. A book of advice and witty two-liners from King Solomon. I definitely advise everyone has a look at, um, at that book and start in chapter 10. Three friends defy the ruler of the, world, of the known world and live to tell their tale. They get away with it. Daniel gets thrown to the lions and finds out he is a cat person after all. The entire but very brief book of Jonah, which is in many ways a, a dark comedy, have a look at that one. The birth of Jesus. Read that in Luke 1 to 2. Jesus heals a cheeky blind man. Jesus and the prostitute. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you haven't read that before, it will blow your mind. Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can find that in all the Gospels. Read it in each one and see what the differences are. There are so many cool stories that you can start with if you haven't been in this book before or if you haven't been in it for a while. Pick one now. Think about the ones we just read through and, and maybe make a conscious effort to read through the one that caught your attention the most maybe tonight or this afternoon after church. Get back into it. So there is such a breadth of different types of stories in here. But there's also something else that's amazing about this book. You can read it for entertainment. You can read it for information. But also read it as a love letter that builds a relationship. Learn to find the meaning behind the facts. For example, the story where Jesus saves the life of a prostitute that the religious leaders were going to condemn uh, to death. Meaning? He said to her, I don't condemn you. 
go and sin no more. What does that mean for me? He says to me, I forgive you, Jason, for X, Y, Z. Now put it behind you and go and live right. Look for the meaning. And one of the really amazing things about this book is the layers of depth that you seem to continually discover something new every time you go into it. You can read the same story over and over again and still get something deeper and something new out of it. Amazing. You don't get that from any other book. So let's, let's do that. Let's have a look at how that whole depth thing works just for a moment. If you've got your Bible, if you've got your mobile phone or your tablet or whatever it is that you read on, grab it. We're going to throw it up on the screen as well. I'm going to read through a story really quickly and then we're going to have a look at how this depth thing works just for a moment. So if you've got something you're going to read it on yourself, turn to Genesis 22. If not, I believe it's about to be on screen. Here we go. Okay. Genesis 22 verse 1, if you're reading along. I'm going to read through this pretty quickly just for time's sake. So let's have a look. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And early in the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go with the boy over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and uh, placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you love God because you have not withheld your son your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of, their ci of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Okay, so for anyone who's uh, been a Christian for a while, you probably know the story. Some of you might be new to the story, that's fine. It's a pretty basic story. There's a lot going on, but we get the plot line, right? And as we read it, I remember the first time as a, as a boy when I first heard this story, and perhaps the first time we read it, there's probably one thing that stands out more than anything else, and that is this whole thing of how could God 
a loving God asks someone to sacrifice their only son. And what sort of man obeys a command like that? And so this, this whole theme of obedience seems to come out. And so perhaps the first time we read a story like this, we go, you know what? Obedience. Obedience, obedience, obedience stands out. And it's just, it seems a bit bizarre that God would ask that. But you know what the story teaches me about obedience and about God? It teaches me that even if I don't understand what God is saying or why he's saying something, if I obey, this story shows me if I obey God, then it'll work out. And so we get this layer of meaning about obedience. And then perhaps someone else reads it or perhaps you come back and read the story again a little later in time when you've learned a little bit more about God or perhaps God's just trying to say something a little different to you. And you read the story again and all of a sudden there's, a, there's another layer of depth to this story. All of a sudden when you read the story through you realise that Abraham knew what God was like. You see, in a world where all the other heathen gods were asking for human sacrifices, and culturally, this was something that happened. Abraham knew that his God was against that. He knew that his God did not support human sacrifices. And, and Abraham expected that God would somehow provide because he knew what his God was like. And there are so many passages in the story that give hints to that. Um, for example, when, uh, when he says to his servants, when they get to the mountain and he says to his servants, you guys stay here with the donkey, I'm going to go with the boy and what does he say? I will come back to you? No, he says, we will come back to you. Somehow, Abraham knew his God well enough that he knew something was going to happen. And so we get this second layer of depth where we say, it's not just about, I have to blindly obey, but Abraham knew his God. He knew what God was like. And so then we, we read it again sometime later and we get another layer of depth. Abraham didn't just know what his God was like, but he, with all his being, believed that God would save Isaac. It was more than knowing what God was like. He believed that God would save Isaac. You look when Isaac asks his father the question, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but where is the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Depending on which version you read, it's a, the wording's a little bit different, but if you go back to the Hebrew, it says that, let me go in here, where was it? What was his uh, response? He said, God will provide himself the lamb. It doesn't say God's going to provide a lamb. He says God will provide himself as the lamb. God is going to be the lamb. And there are so many other um, hints throughout the story where we see that Abraham believes that something is going to happen. In, in the book of Hebrews in the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes about this story and he says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Even though God had said to Abraham, It is through your son Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
So Abraham reasoned somehow, he believed somehow that that God had promised something through this son Isaac that could only happen if Isaac was alive. So he believed that, Paul says, God must be able to raise him from the dead. He's asked me to kill him, but God's, he must have the power to even raise him from the dead. Now, why would Abraham even believe something like that? No one, as far as we're aware, has, has risen from the dead at the time of Abraham. This is an unknown concept. You know, so many people have died and they've never come back. What's, going, you know, what's happening there? What, what knowledge was this based on? But, but at this level, we see Abraham believed in his God. Didn't just know him, didn't just obey him, but he believed in him. And then there's a fourth layer, and there's probably more. But then there's another layer of depth. And we see that Abraham didn't just believe in God, but God loved Abraham so much. And Abraham and God had such a strong relationship and such a strong bond that God actually showed him his plan. God actually showed him the future of what his son Jesus Christ was going to do. And he explained what it all meant and what the sacrifice of Jesus was going to achieve for humankind, how he was going to save us from our sins. And there are so many texts through that passage that actually reveal this to us. If we have a look at it again. Um, then, verse 2, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On the mountain I will show you. A little bit further, he says, uh, he set out for the place that God had told him about. God and Abraham have been speaking all night and God's been telling him about a specific mountain. And he tells him something so interesting that the next morning, it says, early in the morning, Abraham got up and went. He was so moved by what he heard that he just got up and went. Further on, when they reached the place that God had told him about, and even further on, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On this mountain, it will be provided. And you know what? It's not just the passages of, uh, of that text. In John 8, uh, 56, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are challenging Jesus about his identity and saying, who are you? You must be a devil. And he says, no. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He couldn't wait to see my day. And he did see it, and he was glad. Jesus says, God showed Abraham what Jesus would go through on the cross. And it's in that context that Abraham went out the next day with his only son. We ask... How could God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? I can't, I couldn't sacrifice Cooper, my only son. I couldn't do that. I couldn't kill him. I couldn't go through that. But that's what God the Father did. And it impacted Abraham so much that it changed Abraham. And we see so many similarities between Isaac and Jesus. 
We've got a few that we can throw up on the screen. Um, both sons, Isaac and Jesus, were born through divine intervention. Abraham and his wife were too old to have a child. God, it was a miracle. Each son is the one and only son of their father. In each case, the father loved their son. The son was submissive to the will of the father. The father leads his son to be sacrificed. Both sons leave their homeland to go to a place of being sacrificed. A donkey is involved in the journey in both of these. The son carries the wood or the son carries the cross to the place of sacrifice. The sacrifice takes place on the same mountain. In 2 Chronicles, we read that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple on Mount Moriah. The sun was laid upon the wood. The sun was bound to the wood or to the cross. And in both cases, the father provided the sacrifice, the ram and Jesus. And we've already noted the wording that Abraham uses when he replies to his son Isaac. The Lord will provide himself the lamb. The ram was caught by the horns in his head and Jesus was caught by a prickly crown of thorns in his head. And the son ultimately survives the sacrifice in both stories. There are more than 30 similarities between Isaac and Jesus. And so you see, this book, this amazing book, just has layers upon layers upon layers of depth. And the more time you spend in it, the more God reveals to us. So, we've seen the, the, the breadth of its stories of experience with God. We've seen the depth that this book has to offer us. So how do we read it? How do you read it? Do you find it hard to read it? I'll be honest, I'm not a reader. I find it hard to read anything. Novels, Bibles, whatever. Okay? So how do we read it? Well, there's no right or wrong answer, but I thought I would just go through um, a few tips, and we can put these up on the board as well. I think we have tips for reading the Bible. Here's a few things for you to think about. It might, it might just help you out a little bit. Number one, make it a daily encounter with Jesus. Have that consistent saviour focus. When should you read it? Well, that's really up to you. But devotional time is uh, often not a matter of mind over matter, but mind over mattress. And late night TV, I can tell you, is the absolute killer of both um, late night devotional time and early morning devotional time. So think about that. But if you can just start with five to ten minutes, just five minutes, what you'll find is as you make it a habit, something will change. Somehow God impacts us, somehow God changes things and we seem to find more and more time and, and somehow that five minutes becomes ten and fifteen and thirty and before you know it, you're, you're going, oh, I just, I just want to read a bit more but I've got to stop, I've got to go to work. Okay, number two, have a dedicated place where you can read without distraction. Okay? Number three, do not read this book from start to finish, at least not, in, uh, not when you're new to it. Okay? And this happens time and time again. People go, well, you know, I've heard about this Christianity thing, I've heard about the Bible thing, I'm going to start from the beginning. And they start with Genesis, and that's great. There's lots of great stories in Genesis. And then they get to Exodus. 
And that's terrific. And they get about halfway through Exodus to about Exodus chapter 20 and things start to go a little bit sideways. And then they hit Leviticus. My goodness, that is a killer. If they survive Leviticus, they're not going to get through numbers. I'll tell you that right now. And so we have a church. We have churches all over the country of experts on Genesis and the first half of Exodus. Don't read the book from beginning to end. Uh, we've given you a list on the website of stories that you can read. See our reading list. Number four, and this is a, uh, this is a good strategy, read only one little chunk. We just went through the story of Isaac. That was too long. Really, it was too long. Just read a little chunk. Just something small and think about, you know, it might be just a little parable, a little miracle, a little teaching. And it helps you focus on one thing throughout your day. And it's a lot easier for you. If you do, maybe at lunchtime or something, you have a bit of downtime, you'll find that it's much easier for you to just to reflect on one little thing. Take one little thing with you through the day. When you read your stories, reread to relive. Most of us are visual. Make a video of what you're reading in your head and ask yourself the, the questions, you know, what, what was it like? What did it smell like? What did it sound like? You know, what, is the wind blowing? Is it hot? Put yourself into the story and really live it. Reread it to relive it. Number six, always ask yourself, what I'm reading, what does this tell me about Jesus? Even in the Old Testament stories, what does this tell me about Jesus? And we just had an example of that with the story of Abraham and Isaac. Number seven, try keeping a journal. As you're reading, you don't have to write a lot, but as you're reading, try to journal your experience with God's Word. Are you perhaps similar somehow to the people in the story that you're reading about? Do you have questions? Write them down. Has God given you some kind of aha moment or insight? Write it down for yourself. Mention anything that jumps out. Or perhaps just write a little message back to God. You've read his word, write something back. Number nine, don't do it alone. The Bible isn't a novel. It's not an inspirational manual. It's not a history book or anything else that you would normally put into the category of a book. It wasn't made with the goal of getting you to curl up on a chair with a hot drink and, and enjoy a good read. It's a collection of writings that are meant to be shared, debated, wrestled over, and talked about with other people. So I'd encourage you, find a friend or a family member or a small group in this church or someone else to actually partner with you through your journey in the Bible. And you know what? There, if you're interested in doing that, uh, already, we've talked about small groups a few weeks ago. Neil talked about that, and there are small groups which are happening where they're reading through the Bible. Join one of those. Um, there are other groups that are spontaneously joining, uh, starting. You know, there are groups of people who are saying, um, "I, I want to learn the basics and about baptism." Uh, if you're interested in that, talk to Neil. If you're interested in joining up with people, talk to Neil. Talk to whoever, myself, Simo, whoever it is. Don't do it alone. And number ten. Make good use of the numerous and amazing resources that are available out there. Um, I think we might have a quick screenshot of some of those. Uh, no, we don't. We've got, so this is the church website. And on there, if you can see it at the top in the main menu, we've gone to sermons, 
and then there's um, three submenus under there and you'll find all these resources there. And there's a list of links. There's Bibles, there's devotionals, there's um, uh, commentaries that help explain the stories, there's um, sites, Ad- Adventist sites which will help you, there are other church sites. I've put a few uh, Christian bookstore web links up there where you can buy stuff. There's everything you need to get started. Okay? Have a look at it and use the resources available to you. This is an amazing book that can change your life. In Acts 4, it's talking about that young, early Christian church. And there's a time where uh, uh, Peter and John, I think it is from memory, are going out and they're talking to people about Jesus. This church is just starting. And it's interesting, the passage in Acts 4.13 says, When the people saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that these were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Note the boldness of the cowardly betrayer of Jesus in Peter, an uneducated, nobody fisherman. And these people were amazed and took note that these men had been with Jesus. If you spend time in this book, like the dog with a turtle on its head, people will notice. They'll smell it on you. And there is nothing sweeter than the smell of this book. This is an amazing book. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will continue to speak to us through your word and through your spirit. And I pray that you will make us receptive. I pray that we will look deeper into the experiences that people have had with you in the past and that we will start to have real experiences with you ourselves. I pray for every head that's bowed here this morning and for our families. And I pray that we will look for excuses to get into your word and to spend time with you and that you will reveal amazing mysteries and, and, uh, and wonderful truths to us like you have to so many characters in this book. Go with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.